About a year and a half ago, film producer Harvey Weinstein had several cases of sexual assault accused against him. More and more women kept coming forward and describing the terrible things that he did to them. And in response to this, actress Alyssa Milano tweeted this. She says, if all the women who have been sexually harassed or assaulted wrote Me Too as a status, we might give people a sense of the magnitude of the problem. So she asked the world to put Me Too as their status. So when someone would say, I've been sexually assaulted before, someone else, a woman would say, Me Too, as a way of showing that they too have been sexually assaulted. And that began this hashtag, hashtag Me Too, a hashtag that was used 19 million times on Twitter. 19 million times. And I remember a year and a half ago when women started putting this up. And I was surprised because it was people that I knew. People in my friend group started putting up Me Too as their status. And I knew that sexual assault was real and rape and abuse, they're all real. But I guess for some reason I kind of just assumed that it happened to other people. People that weren't part of my life. And I was just surprised by, uh, I was realized that this is such a larger issue than I probably even imagined. And I can't help but think about a couple of the other statistics I ran across as well. I, I looked to the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence and it says, uh, one in three women and one in four men have experienced some form of physical violence by an intimate partner. One in three women and one in four men have experienced some form of physical violence by the person that should be closest to them in life, one of their romantic partners. And it gets worse. One in five women will be raped in their lifetime. Now, I'm not sure how these statistics, how the, the research they did to prove this, but I'm assuming it's somewhat close. One in five women will be raped in their lifetime. And when I look at the 19 million people that put up Me Too as their status and look at these statistics, I can't help but think about the people in my life. I can't help but think about my wife, who I would do anything to protect her. I can't help but think about my unborn daughter and wonder about what type of world that she's going to be born into. I think about my unmarried sister who's still going on dates. I think about all the children that go to this school. And I think about you. I think about the painful stories that you've already told me in this church. And I can only imagine all the painful stories out there that I'm unaware of. Sexual abuse is real. Abuse is real and it affects the lives of the people around us. So we need to talk about it. It's in God's word and it impacts the people around us. So instead of shying away from this topic, we're going to continue in our sermon series, When Relationships Create Scars, and talk about abuse. And we're going to be using three talking points today. Uh, first, why is there abuse in the world? Second, how do some twist scripture to justify their abuse? And third, where is true healing? So first we're going to talk about uh, the reason of why there's abuse even in the world. Why does God let that happen? Uh, second, we're going to talk about how uh, some um, people manipulate scripture to try and justify their abuse. And then third, we're going to find out that the only true source of healing comes from Jesus Christ. So we're going to go to Psalm chapter 10. Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? So this psalm begins uh, with the psalmist asking, Why, God? 
Why do you seem to uh, turn away from people that do terrible things? Why do you let so many terrible things go on in this world? And we could clearly make this about abuse as well. Why is it that there are so many rapists out there that get caught and they just get a slap on the wrist from our American justice system and they walk away free? Why do parents and priests molest children? Why do people in a marriage belittle and disrespect one another and get divorces? Why do these things happen? Why is it that you have boys in college that take advantage of unconscious girls and the university does nothing about it? Why is there so much abuse in the world? Why is there rape in the world? Why do these things exist? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. And that's the question that the psalmist is asking God. He's beginning to doubt God's justice system. And then he goes on to describe all the wickedness that there is in the world. In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak who are caught in the schemes he devises. He says to himself, nothing will ever shake me. He swears, no one will ever do me harm. So wicked people hunt down the weak. And when you think about abuse, who are the normal people that get abused? Well, it's women and children. Why? Because generally speaking, men are bigger and stronger than women and children, so they can use their power to get what they want from them. And that's wickedness. That's what they said. The Bible talks about how wicked people are going to abuse the weak. And look at the arrogance of the wicked people. They say, nothing will ever shake me. No one's going to know. I'm never going to get caught. I can do what I want. That's the attitude of the wicked. He lies in wait to catch the helpless. He catches the helpless and drags them off in his net. His victims are crushed. They collapse. They fall under his strength. He says to himself, God will never notice. He covers his face and never sees. So once again, we see here that the wicked take advantage of the helpless. And they use their, power to over, they use their strength and power to overpower them, and there's nothing that the weak can do about it. And the wicked laugh. They say, God will never notice. He hasn't stopped me yet, so why should I think that he stops me in the future? And he taunts God. So why is there abuse in the world? Why does this exist? Well, for a simple answer, it's because there are wicked people in the world. And there's wickedness in my heart. And there's wickedness in your heart as well. From the time that Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, every single person was born with sin and wickedness in their hearts. And that sin and wickedness has played out in all sorts of terrible ways. It plays out by people raping one another, it plays out by husbands and wives being disrespectful to one another and at times becoming physically violent. It talks about people using their strength for the wrong reason, for hurting one another. All this happens because there is wickedness in your heart and in my heart and everyone else's heart in this world. And even if you've never been tempted to commit any of those types of sins of abuse or sexual assault, I bet you can relate to the psalmist about that first passage I showed you that says, Why, Lord, why do you let this happen? Do you feel that doubt in your heart? Do you ever look at this world and say, Why, God, why would you let this happen? And you see the doubt and the wickedness that's in your heart as well. So a simple answer to why is there abuse in the world is because there is wickedness and wicked people in it. 
So second, how do some twist scripture to justify their abuse? There's a reason I have this point up there. Uh, The big reason is because while I was doing my research on this topic, one of the largest demographics of people out there that abuse other people are men who call themselves a Christian but don't go to church often. So people are men that have some idea about the Bible, but they don't really get it because they don't often come to church. So what happens is you have these men who say they're a Christian, they take Bible passages out of context and try and use it as a way to justify their their abuse. Uh, Let me give you an example of this. I heard a story on ABC News about a man named Peter who uh, was abusive to his wife named Sally. He would call her uh, insubordinate and stupid. Whenever she did something that he didn't want her to do, he would freak out. He, uh, he had a mean nickname for her best friend, who he called Ratface. And he demanded sex every single night. And when he didn't get it, he would say this, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife. And Sally didn't know what to do. She was a Christian. She didn't want to sin against God. But how could she put up with this behavior of her husband? So let me talk about this passage for a little bit. First, I'd like to point out this word, submit. And I don't know if that's the best word or the best translation from the Greek into the English language. Because when I first think about the word submit, the first imagery that kind of comes to my mind is usually like two wrestlers, and one's dominating the other one, and the one on the bottom says, I submit, I submit. That's usually kind of the first thing that I think about when I think of the word submit. And I don't think that helps much when you talk about a marriage, because that's not what this verse is talking about. Uh, Instead, I think a better word to use would probably be to respect or yield to. So wives, respect your husbands. Wives, yield to your husbands. It's not a verse talking about that wives should just be their husband's punching bag or to be bossed around with no one's business. Uh, God designed marriages for wives to respect their husbands. But what's even more important than that is the, uh, the command that God gives husbands. Just a couple verses later, it says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So husbands are commanded to love their wives. They are, a husband should never say, Hey, submit to me. A husband should never say that. Instead, a husband should love their wife. That's how God designed marriage, where having wives respect the leadership of their husband and husbands doing anything to love their wife. Clearly, this isn't a verse that a husband can use to justify his abuse. Second one, this verse. Spare the rod, spoil the child. Uh, I heard a story about this one too. There was a man who had a daughter, and he caught his daughter talking to a boy that he didn't want her talking to. So you know what he did? He grabbed her by the arm, dragged her home, and beat her with a cane 100 times so that she would learn her lesson. And he said, spare the rod, spoil the child. I'm just disciplining my child. So what would he say to that? Well, this phrase, it comes from a book of Proverbs, and here's the full version of it. It says, whoever spares the rod hates their children, but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. So the first thing I'd like to point out is that it's from a book called Proverbs, a book of wise living. So first off, this isn't even a command by, uh, this isn't even commanded to parents. It's just a, a verse talking about a wise way how to live. And at the heart of this message, 
is that parents should discipline their children. Which I think we should all, we all agree on, that parents should discipline their children. And the rod is probably a metaphor for that, that parents should discipline their children. And there are different ways how to discipline a child, but the heart of the matter of what Christians should do to discipline their parents, or parents to discipline their children, you get what I'm saying, is that uh, they should point out their sin and show them their Savior. Point out what they did wrong and then correct that behavior. And there are different ways how to do this. You can do that through timeouts and taking away privileges. You can do that through spankings or a rod. And it's clear that the parents need to be careful how they do this. The goal of a parent is to love their child and to correct wrong behaviors, um, not to abuse them. So you can't use this verse to say, I'm going to hit my child a hundred times with a cane because the Bible tells me to. Uh, Martin Luther said this about it, and he was uh, very clear that as he grew up, his father physically hit him quite a bit. And he said, What a person forces by means of a rod will come to no good end. At best, children will remain good as long as the rod is at their back, but this other kind of training takes root in their hearts. I say this for the sake of the young. So Martin Luther says there, there's a point for the rod. You know, it, it quickly changes a behavior. But if you actually want to have long-term change, this requires conversations and, uh, and to discipline them appropriately. So parents are to love their children. They're to discipline them, but they also need to be careful that this doesn't cross into the line of abuse. Parents are to love their children through discipline, but not beat them into submission. So, number three. Why are there abuse stories in the Bible? This one comes up quite a bit. Because you read through the Bible, you read through the Old Testament, uh, and there are a lot of uh, heartbreaking stories. We read one in our first lesson about the rape of Tamar. And somebody could look at that story, and they could look at the other stories of incest and rape in the Bible and abuse, and say, why would I listen to anything that this book has to say? So what do you say to them? I think the first thing I would point out is the fact that the Bible is a history book. It points out stories that actually happened. And the Bible, unlike many other religious books, doesn't hide the dark and dirty parts of their history. It shows what happened. It shows this is the sin that happened at that time. And in a way, I think these stories can actually be incredibly comforting. If you are a woman that went through some form of abuse or rape, uh, and you read the story about the rape of Tamar, it can be comforting knowing that you aren't alone, that you aren't the only person that has experienced this. Uh, God's word actually has things that they says about it. So why are there abuse stories in the Bible? Because they're real. It was real then, and it's real today. And instead of the Bible tiptoeing about these uh, tough subjects, it straight up talks about it. That's why they're in the Bible. So how do some twist scripture and justify their abuse? The reason why I showed you all these things is to point out that the Bible is a book of love. It's about love that Christ showed us and the love that we are now to show to one another. And if anyone ever tried to trick you into believing that the Bible supports abuse, they are twisting scripture and are lying. Finally, where is true healing? Arise, Lord, lift up your hand, O God. Do not forget the helpless. 
Why does the wicked man revile God? Why does he say to himself, He won't call me to account, but you, God, see the trouble of the afflicted. You consider their grief and take it in hand. The victims commit themselves to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. So in the first verse of this psalm, it talked about how we're tempted to think, God just lets anything go. He's never going to punish the wicked. But in these verses, we see that God is the helper to the helpless. God knows the pain in your life. God knows every abuse and every time it happened. And he knows that the pain that you went through. He is the helper to the helpless. He is the father to the fatherless. And how comforting is that passage for us? Because we know that there are so many fathers out there that have done terrible things. Maybe they left their family. Maybe they hurt you. Maybe they said something terrible to you. But we have God as our father. And he's better than any earthly father ever could be. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. You, Lord, hear the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed, so that mere earthly mortals will never again strike terror. So in about a year and a half ago, when 19 million women used the hashtag MeToo, I can believe that that was probably very comforting. For a woman that went through something like that, I can imagine her not wanting to talk about it because it's a tough topic to talk about. It can be embarrassing. But then to have all these other women come forward and say, me too, I can imagine there's so much comfort in that solidarity. But I want to tell you about somebody else who could have said, me too. And that's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who lived in heaven and had all power and all authority, came to this world and was abused by men. Jesus was verbally, verbally abused. People said all sorts of terrible things about him. Roman soldiers mocked him and spit on him. And Jesus was physically abused. He was hit. He was beaten. He was whipped. He was nailed to a cross. And Jesus became fatherless for you and me. On the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he cried out to his heavenly Father, and Jesus heard no answer. On the cross, Jesus died alone and abused and fatherless so that we could have God as our heavenly Father. Jesus went through that pain so that we would never have to go through it again. Jesus did all that so that we could be part of his family. And imagine being part of that place. Imagine one day being in heaven where you will never have to go through any pain again. Imagine what it will be like to never have to worry about your child or your spouse or your sister ever again because they are warm and welcome in our Father's big and welcoming arms. Imagine what that will be like. Imagine what that will be like to never have to go through pain again, to live in a world where there's no abuse, no pain, no other these, no of these things ever again, because we are safe in our Father's family. So, for those of you who have possibly been through an abuse at some form of your life, while you're still in this world, until we get to heaven, there is still healing by looking at Jesus Christ. Jesus knows your pain. He's the helper to those who are helpless. And Jesus can say, me to it. Me too, to that pain that you've gone through. But while we're still here, let's be a church that helps those who have gone through some type of abuse. And as your pastor, I need to make a promise to you. 
if you have ever gone through some form of abuse, or it's still happening, I promise to you that if no one has ever heard your story, I'd be willing to listen. I will listen to your story, and I will take it seriously. I'm not a professional counselor or a licensed therapist, but I will point you to God's word and can hopefully also point you in the right direction for some other form of professional counseling or to help you get in the right direction for reporting it to the authorities. You have that promise from me. And if I can speak to the men in this room, a couple things I want to say to you. God has made you strong, but he never gave you your strength to hurt other people. Instead, men in this room, let's use our strength to build up the strong women around us. Let's use it to protect everyone in our lives. Let's use it to protect the children in here. What do you think would happen? Imagine what would happen if all the men here used their strength to watch over the women and children of this church. Imagine all the great things that would happen to our families if men decided to use their strength for that type of good instead of hurting other people. Abuse is real. It affects so many people in the lives around us. But Jesus knows that. Jesus went through that pain of abuse so that one day you will never have to go through that pain again. We do this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand.